Good morning, good morning. My name is Andrea Simintov, and you're listening to Pull Up a Chair on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Okay, my list of countries just came in, and that always excites me. Sorry, adjusting the mic. We have listening with us tonight. It's late at night. The U.S. is with us. I guess in California, it's 9 p.m. on the East Coast. It's midnight. Hi, guys. Very nice to know that you're listening in live. Boker Tov Eretz Yisrael. Going to be another scorcher today. We have so much going on in Israel. Maybe we'll get to touch upon some of it today. Uh, we want to keep the show upbeat and light, but a few things we may have to address since our friends in Canada who are listening in, our friends in Brazil, and of course my good buddies in South Africa really want to know the scoop and what it feels like to have the heartbeat of Haaretz. All right, we're getting ready, guys. I'm not sure. I, I haven't spoken with management yet. I don't know if we're doing a show next week. So in addition to doing Parsha today, the Torah portion, we're also going to uh, be talking a lot about Rosh Hashanah because I don't know about what it's like outside of Israel. I used to know, but I don't really know anymore. But here, the vibe is everywhere. It's after the Chagim, before the Chagim. Um, can this be ready in time for the Chagim, the holidays? So, you know, it really serves as this umbrella framework for everything that's going on. And it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter if one is Torah observant, not yet observant. Even our Arab uh, neighbors, you know, are, are saying, do you need this before the Chagim? I, I go to the meat department and they say, well, you need this for the holidays. Don't you want a fish head? Um, it's really quite interesting. Living in Israel is a, it's a trip like no other. But, you know, we always mention the food. And I think that today, I'm going to watch the clock carefully today, I really want to drive home, especially to those who are just kind of learning more about their ancestry, learning more about Torah observance. You know, we've always been a very gastronomic society. Uh, we were a bagel and lox. What does it mean to be Jewish? Lakas, bagel and lox. We can automatically go the sufganiyot, the donuts on Hanukkah. There's not one holiday that we're allowed to eat that we don't talk about the special dishes, certainly that touch us on our respective cultures. And on the holidays when we're on the on the commemorative days when we're fasting, we're talking about what we would like to eat. And it's usually Jewish food. But I'd like to sort of suggest that it's not about the food. Food's important, food's great. The shulchan, the table at which we sit with loved ones does indeed replicate what we call the mazbeach, an altar and especially the holiday table, where talk goes to things that are holy, our hopes for the year, our aspirations of the year. So I'm not minimizing talk of the food, but let's not lose sight that these days of awe, the days leading up to the days of awe, the 10 days of repentance, um, represent staggering, unprecedented, how special am I, opportunity. We're being given these incredible opportunities. And to just talk about, you know, 
should I get this hat or that hat? I got to get that haircut in. And I don't know. I don't know if this cut of meat is good as that. It's all important. But we don't want to miss the opportunity. Um, this time of year, you know, especially Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is when we are supposed to be, when ideally we begin to tune into one another. What's going on with my neighbor? If my neighbor is sad, if my neighbor is poor, if my neighbor is suffering, my life cannot be hunky-dory because we all are cut from the same fabric. I mentioned time and time again, the Jewish, I just went, I think I mentioned on last week's show, I had gone to the Israel Museum with one of my grandsons who shows a proclivity to being really very artistic. And I took him to see the tapestries and the tapestries were perfect. But we talked about if one of the tapestries was torn, is the tapestry still okay? Do we ignore it and go through the museum? Is that what the curator of the museum does? Or does the, or does the curator, the artists, the repairers, run in with all the tools at their disposal to repair the most minute tear so that it does not out of neglect, grow larger until it becomes irreparable. There's an old parable, and we've all heard it in different forms, but it's poignant. Sitting in a boat with other people, and the guy across from you takes out a hand drill, and he begins to drill a hole under his seat on this day cruise boat. And you begin screaming at him, what are you doing? What are you, crazy? Why are you drilling a hole? He goes, mind your own business. I paid for this seat. It's my seat. My hole has nothing to do with you. That hole under his seat represents potential demise for all of us. Heard a lovely vort this week from Rabbi uh, Ephraim Goldberg in Boca Raton. I'm a new groupie. And he was talking about the Kiddush, the Shabbos Kiddush. And um, he's a man, a man can make Kiddush. He makes Kiddush in the shul, he makes Kiddush for his family, makes Kiddush for his chevra, makes Kiddush for his children. The Kiddush is the, the blessing um, the blessing before the meal when we have our wine. Okay? Kiddush, holiness. And Rabbi Goldberg said that by the time he gets home from shul some days, when he gets home from synagogue, he's made five kiddushes. He goes into, you know, he's an important guy. He goes into this, this minion, this quorum of men who have finished praying, and he makes kiddush with them. And he goes, but then he comes home and he sees a child is sleeping. He's made Kiddush five times. His child is, 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 gets up, hasn't heard Kiddush, cannot eat, cannot partake in the meal. Is he allowed to make Kiddush again? And the answer very simply is yes. Because as long as another Jew is not fulfilling a mitzvah, we are all responsible to help one another complete 
the mitzvah. And what is a mitzvah? You know, we say the mitzvah is a commandment. I don't know about you. I don't, I don't do well with being bullied. I don't do well with commandments. I command you to. I'm going to wake my husband up now. I'm going to command him to uh, change the faucet. I'm going to command him to buy grapes on the way home. I'm going to command him to. I'll give you the list. No. Let's lighten up the language. Let's make the language more godly. A mitzvah is an opportunity. If someone is missing the opportunity to hear Kiddush, we have failed. Or, let's not say failed, we are being lax. And while we're on the subject of mitzvah as an opportunity, we want to gather, we go out with our wicker basket, and let's go con collect those opportunities and they're all around us, they're all around us, they're all around us. On the same, by the same token, a chet, which is our word for sin. What a bleak word. It's not even a Jewish concept. Sin. Eternal sin. Original sin. But imagine... Sin translated to a lost opportunity. When we didn't eat what we were supposed to eat, when we didn't bless what we were supposed to bless, when we watched something that was not fit for our holy eyes and our holy souls, when we spoke in a language that diminished our inherent, our innate, and our God-given holiness, we've lost an opportunity. But we can get it back. These are the days of awe. And I tell you, sometimes things get so confused, we get confused and we get mixed up with other religions, the heaven and hell, the angels and the devils. Very hard. Very hard to unsee, unlearn, dismiss what is not part of our DNA. In these days of awe, no one is exempt. Remember, even as you were walking into synagogue and you spoke Lashon Hara, you spoke slander in the lobby of the synagogue before you began to pray there's still time you can't amend it you eat something wrong you eat something not jewish commit to changing and you'll commit again and again these are the days of awe and everyone listening in is awesome, available, and at the ready. My name's Andrea, and I'll see you on the other side. From Israel.
We're back. Andrea Simintov, Pull Up a Chair, IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. And for those that are listening live, um, it feels nice. It feels very, very nice. Austria has joined us this morning. And uh, welcome. Good morning. So we were talking right before. I hope I'm in the mic okay. You know, it's, uh, um, lest... Lest one thinks, thinks, one believes that I'm preaching, standing, standing at the pulpit, talking down, letting you know the way it should be. I want to share a very intimate story. Very painful, very intimate. And yet, the gratitude that engulfed me after the episode I'm about to share is in fact, I believe, unprecedented in my life. Last Friday morning, I had an interaction with a service provider, a service provider who I've used quite a bit, young woman. And um, I was a little, feeling a little sorry for myself. I, I was working, so I got up so early and I had so much to do and I hit the gym and then I went here and I went there and I had to drive to another city do an errand, drive immediately back from the city, do another errand, make Shabbos, do some laundry, get involved with my studio. We all know the feeling. Nobody here is listening says, gee, I've never had one of those days. And the service provider that I was going to, I had to meet with, said to me, oh, I thought you were going to be here earlier. We had never confirmed it. I said, I'll try to be there very early on Friday, but we never confirmed it. She never called me. I never called her. She made some assumptions, and I assumed that my time frame was fine. You know what they say about assume. Break it down. Make an ass of you and me. And because I was driving, we weren't texting, but there was a lot of those uh, voice messages back and forth. And I finally snapped at her and I said, stop scolding me. Stop scolding me. It wasn't clear. You have the ability to call me. I have the ability to call you. And we didn't. I see that we have a clash of personalities. Maybe this is a business relationship that uh, is not good for the future. And I was feeling pretty. I let her know where I was as the purveyor of services. And I got another voice message. And it was very different. She was sobbing. Sobbing on the phone. Sobbing into the the, uh, WhatsApp. Everyone tells me when I'm not working up to par. Everyone is quick to tell me when they're not satisfied. I never heard you once say how terrific my work is every time you use me. I never once heard you say, how are you today? What's going on with you? I pulled to the side of the road, shamed, humbled. What had I done to bring her to the point of tears? In my arrogance, in my self righteousness in my how cruel the heavens and the stars are being to me today moment 
and I sent her another voicemail. I said, I'm on my way and I am so sorry. I am so grateful for this message. I'm so sorry that you were brought to tears, but you did such a mitzvah. You handed me not only my Shabbos, you handed me my Elul. If we are not aware for even a moment of the striving of others, Everybody wants to be seen as accomplished. Everybody wants to be seen as good. Everybody wants to be seen as worthy. And when we take those moments and we ignore them for our own self, what's the word? Aggrandizement? We've missed the opportunity. Everything's good. My service provider and I are very good friends now. I did send her flowers before Shabbos. I thanked her for reminding me that even though I talked to others about what an incredible purveyor of great services she is, I never told her. If her tapestry is frayed, If there is a hole under her seat, we are all compromised. I really wanted to share that with you. One other thing, very important before we go on to all my little itty bitty notes. Um, We're responsible for each other. If there is no other message, to Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, not the tuchus of the year, not the tongue of the year, not the belly of the year, not the heart of the year, but the head, the intelligence, the well thought out, the weighing of the year. You know, every time there's a terrible story about a Jew committing a crime and it's on the front page of the Wall Street Journal or the New York Post. There's not a Jew who reads that article and doesn't cower in shame. This is the message that we can acquire from Rosh Hashanah. Just as someone does good work and it reflects well on all of us, the Jew who gets too much money from the ATM and immediately goes and returns it to the bank, performing a kiddush Hashem, a sanctification of his name. We have these opportunities, day and night, night and day. We have to learn to take off the rose-colored glasses and acquire our 2020 vision. Came across a lovely quote. Someone has attributed this to Jackie Chan. You all know Jackie Chan, right? I don't think I've ever seen a Jackie Chan film. But you know what? Let's forget it a moment. I'll have to, if anybody knows, Andrea at IsraelIsTalkRadio.com, tell me if this is, is him. But in the meantime... Let's pretend that each one of us has written this from our hearts. Your hard work 
is the dream of every unemployed person. Your naughty child is the dream of every childless person. Your little home is the dream of every homeless person. Your small capital is the dream of every debtor. Your poor health is a dream of every patient with an incurable disease. That God hides your sins from the eyes of people is the dream of every person living in disgrace. Your peace of mind, your peaceful sleep, your affordable food is the dream of everyone who is living in a war-torn country. We have to appreciate everything we have. All right, when we come back, man, oh man, oh man, even the Torah portion, not an accident, the incredible blueprint, blueprint of not just Jewish life, blueprint of the entire world, absolutely provides a beautiful gilt-painted frame to the days that are coming up. I do want to share with you that the airports, this is like a, a woohoo and Israel woohoo moment, Remember, not just COVID, not just war, not just the economy. We have suffered terrible deprivation during the years in a country that really does rely on tourism. This past summer was the busiest summer in history. Anyone who visited Ben Gurion Airport for the good and for the bad will have known that just in August, almost, this is staggering, Three million people passed through Ben Gurion. I myself traveled maybe three times in the last five months, and um, the airport worked. When things work, do we notice? When we walk into a room to get a pair of shoes and we flip on the light? Indeed, how many of us take a moment and say, oh my gosh, I have electricity. Oh, there is water coming from the faucets. Well, same thing. The airport is working. I'm looking here. So I want to talk about an uptick of Arab violence. Not really. Things are good now. I mean, things are... Um, yeah. Oh, okay. One thing. We were coming into the Torah portion. Just, I had a client yesterday. Mind-blowing. And I said I'm going to mention it on my show. A couple here in Jerusalem, on their own went to the Bialystok in Poland, the Bialystok Cemetery, contacted the chief rabbi of Poland, and with a group of people, Jews, non-Jews, college students, lay people, undertook to clean the graves of the decimated cemetery in Bialystok, and to also, they contacted a company with heavy moving equipment. They replaced the stones, these are people who did not know. We'll talk more about that on the other side. Time is up. My name's Andrea. See you soon. Um, Andrea Semenchov, pull up a chair, 
days of awe. And the reason we were a little rushed, the reason I mentioned this, this grave project was I, not the child in me, but the mortal, the mortal being. I sometimes wonder, you know, we say that human beings are the only species that recognize their grandchildren. Um, actually, there are a lot of animals. Um, scientists say that they're not really certain how many animals recognize their children or have an affinity towards their offspring. We know that dogs, I mean, dogs know it's their children, dogs and cats, they nurse them, they born them, they clean them. Um, what kind of stick to if they see each other after 10 years, is there that bond? I don't know. But human beings, ideally, are connected to their offspring and their ancestors. And I know that when I became Torah observant, there was a part of me that said, I wonder, oh boy, am I waxing emotional this morning? Ha, get a grip. Um, I wonder if my great, great grandparents who were observant, who were from, who were religious, who were God-centered in Lithuania, Russo Poland, Poland, Russia, wherever they moved the border that week. Do their neshamot, do their souls know on some level that they have religious great, great grandchildren who have come back to their way of life? as was deemed correct by our magnificent blueprint of Torah. And I thought about this because as my friend, my client friend was telling me about cleaning the gravestones of those with whom she had no Kesher, no contact, no history, other than of course our massive Jewish fabric, and she said she and her husband were the only um, Israelis there. And they were the only ones who could translate the gravestones. And she said she was so humbled. The beautiful language that was on some of these stones, all of these people meant something, something, meant something great to others. And she had this enormous sense of connectivity. And I came across a story, crazy. Somebody sent me this video of this boy from Michigan. I never even heard of Atzigo. I'm sure that some of you have read this story. This adorable redheaded kid, a fifth grader with an odd name named Naveen. Apparently he's got like a big history in the, uh, in the community. His ancestors go back to uh, the 1800s. Anyway, this fifth grader who looks a little bit like Alfred E. Newman from Mad Magazine, just adorable, you want to pinch his cheeks, he has undertaken a project to clean the local gravestones. And what I found most fascinating, again, what do we talk about on this show? What do we try to talk about on this show? We have so many listening from all over the world. You know, there are many things that divide us. But the purpose of this show, Pull Up a Chair, if nothing else, are to find the things that connect us, 
Connect us in holiness. Connect us in morality. Connect us in humor. And here, I hear this story about strangers, college students, neighboring poles, cleaning a cemetery of those whose voices were forever silenced. And we find this little boy in Michigan who cleans headstones because he went to see the headstone of one of his ancestors. And he said, it's 10 years old, said it was so dirty. Nobody should have a dirty headstone. And he went online and he started to research what was needed and he became a professional. And now people pay him. They pay him, I think, $20 each to clean headstones. He's putting some of the money into more supplies, some of the money he's putting away for college. And here comes my tears. Anybody who's a veteran, a veteran of a war, gets his headstone cleaned for free. So I have his number here if you want to get in touch with him. If you live in Michigan and you want him to clean your head, it was just lovely. And I just wanted to share that with you. And I say holiness is available to all of us. Okay. This week's Torah portion is Nitzavim Vayelech. Seek Hashem when he can be found. Call out to him when he was close by. The Midrash talks about the 10 days of repentance for Rosh Hashanah through Yom Kippur, which Hashem dwells among us. Harav Itzel Petersburger, okay, he was one of the greatest disciples of the Hagaon Reb Yisrael Salanter. Many of you have heard of Rabbi Salanter. And so he explains a midrash with a parable. You know, again, we've all heard the parable. It never grows stale. There was once a king who occasionally took off of his royal raiments, is that the word? And he put on the simple clothing of common people. He went out into his kingdom unnoticed, kind of to rub shoulders with his subjects and to see firsthand what did they need? What was missing? How was the quality of their lives? One day, the king happens to sit down next to a peasant and he struck up a conversation. After the king left, what happens? The simple man finds out that the person he had been speaking with was no other than the king. He was really distressed. The king was so close to me, he laments. I had the chance to ask for whatever I desired. And what did I do? I squandered a golden opportunity. My friends, we are standing at the cusp of this blessed period when we are all in the same position as that peasant. Hashem is mingling with us, waiting for us to repent and waiting for us to express our needs. I know how many of us are saying, where do I get the chutzpah? Where do I find the unmitigated goal to ask God for anything? I am so pathetic. I'm a disgusting example of what a moral life should be. 
I speak badly. I eat badly. I live badly. God, God will certainly turn his back on me. Don't underestimate yourself. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, he writes, don't imagine that you are too weak. Do not think that because you have given way to sin so often, you cannot finally gain the victory over it. If God demands something of you, he also gives you the strength to achieve it. He furnishes every man at his entry into the world with the strength to perform. You have only to strive. Strive for teshuva. Strive for repentance. For a return to inner purity. To become again what you once were. You can owe. You have to owe everything else to God. But your virtue? Yourself. Therefore, it is that you have the strength to be virtuous. Build yourself on it boldly. And yes, again, and again, and again, if necessary. Remember the message. We are not never done as long as there is breath in our nostrils, we've been given opportunity. When we open our eyes in the morning and we see that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He, has blessed us with another day, start painting on the canvas. We've been given a new canvas, a new opportunity. And if at the end of the day, it's not a masterpiece, it's horrible, it's destined for the junk heap, pray. For another day in another canvas. We're all capable of painting masterpieces with our godliness and with our Torah hearts. You know, all right, so the opening service of the Rosh Hashanah prayers is called Nila. What are we supposed to be feeling? Quite literally, a world of opportunity lies before us. The sound of the shofar, this is a climax to our efforts to build a better world for ourselves and our loved ones. Throwing out a thought, I know that I'm going to be talking about it with Ronnie at our Shabbos table, and I'd like to know, maybe you'll want to talk about it. This week's Torah portion begins with the words, and I'm going to translate you are standing this day, all of you, before the Lord your God. The Butsina Dinahora says, whenever the need arises to take action on behalf of Judaism, to wage the good fight for the glory of Hashem, the people typically protest. Why choose me of all people? I'm so small, I'm nothing. You know what? Leave it to the teachers, the rabbis, the leaders of the community. They're in grave error. When the need arises to act before the Lord your God, you must be standing, all of you, ready for action and not be content to leave the responsibility to our leaders. I'd like to know what your thoughts are on that. You know, the final words of Moshe to Israel regarding the future course in history 
They're recorded for us in these last parshas, the last portions of the Torah. Moshe doesn't mince any words. He doesn't give sweet talk. You know, he's no PR man. He tells Israel of the impending tragedies and difficulties. And still, he offers hope and confidence that eventually all will come right and that there's no room for despair, no matter the problems that the Jewish people will encounter in their long journey through history. Anybody who's listening to this, students of Jewish history and residents of Eretz Israel, know that we have terribly bleak days. I'm ashamed to admit it. I sometimes have days where I think, what is this big experiment called Israel? It's hopeless. That's the ordinary in me. Not the holy, not the strong, not the you can do it. Woman that Hashem created. No, history doesn't give us a free ride. We always have to pay up. We make wrong decisions. There's always another golden calf of sorts on the horizon. And yet, everything that Moshe foretells is going to happen to the Jewish people has occurred. Ramban states that one of the great proofs of the, the, the authenticity of Judaism is the fact that someone, Moshe, could stand millennia earlier and accurately describe what would happen in the far distant and clearly unimaginable future. But this isn't the fact that makes the Jewish story so amazing, certainly in the history of humankind. It's that continued effectiveness, the continued relevance of that covenant, that promise between God and Israel, a covenant that is so clearly described in this week's reading and that guides the story of Jews over these thousands and thousands of years. God's covenant remains forever in force with us. This is critical on those bleak days, on those what's it all about days when we remember I believe it was Rabbi Akiva who laughed when upon seeing the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash the Holy Temple and saw the foxes running in the ruins clearly a sign of decimation and he laughed and when asked why was he laughing he said because it was predicted and it's all true and just as all the negative is true, all the positive is true. The blessings of the covenant will be showered upon us in this great, good new year that's unfolding. <sighs> Came across a lovely story. Rabbi actually Goldberg, who I told you again, I'm in the new groupie. He tells us great story about, um, we all know Ludwig, Ludwig van Beethoven. Was it Beethoven who was deaf? Yes, it wasn't Bach. It was the Renaissance. Okay. I think it was Beethoven who was deaf. But anyway, his home 
is a museum in Bonn, Germany. And so in the home stands front and center Beethoven's piano. What do you think it's worth? It's crazy. The piano is worth, a it's been assessed at over $50 million. And understandably, it is roped off and out of reach to anybody who passes it by. And so there's a story about a group of students from Vassar, Vassar College. I believe it's Vassar in Vermont. It's a woman's college. Is it still woman? Maybe it's co-ed. But anyway, one of the students came into the room that held the piano and she couldn't resist the temptation to ask a museum guard if she could play it for just a moment. She gave him a generous tip and he couldn't and he allowed himself to be influenced. She sat down at the famed piano and knocked out several bars of, I guess it's the Moonlight Sonata, Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. And when she finished... Her classmates gave her a round of applause. And she stepped back through the ropes, and then she asked the guard, I suppose that over all the years, all the great pianists that have come here have played the piano. No, miss, the guard replied. In fact, just two years ago, I was standing in this very place when Ignacy Paderewski visited the museum. I'm just shaking at the name. He was accompanied by the director of the museum and the international press, who had all come in the hope that he would play Beethoven's piano. And, you know, when he went, when he went into the room, he stood there where your friends are standing. And he gazed at the piano in silent contemplation for almost 15 minutes. Imagine 15 minutes, everyone in the room enveloped in the awe of the moment. The director of the museum that invited him to play the piano, but tears welled in his eyes and Paderewski declined saying, he was not worthy even to touch it. Rabbi Goldberg goes on and says, you know, non-human mammals get what we call goosebumps, the constriction of skin surrounding hair follicles when they feel threatened or attacked, but only human beings get goosebumps for a different feeling. And that's awe. Awe is the feeling of being in the presence of greatness, of being exposed to that which is transcendent, extraordinary, beyond our mortal comprehension. Paderewski was in a room with Beethoven's piano and he was frozen in awe. The young student saw the piano and she thought it would be cool to play it. Researchers believe that we're living in a time of awe deprivation. Why shouldn't we feel an awe deprivation? There's been technological advances makes the impossible possible. Anybody who watches um, some of the new Hollywood films that come out, you remember they used to pour, I think they put ketchup on Janet Lee in the movie Psycho to replicate blood. Now, what can't be replicated? Raiders of the Lost Ark? That's, that's antique stuff already. It gets wilder, it gets crazier. We FaceTime with people on the other side of the globe, just listening to the station. We're all together as one. 
We're listening in the same time. How many of you of a certain age like me? I remember having a pen pal in England. I, the year must have been 1961, 62. And I would wait for a letter back from my pen pal whose name was Grace Langley. Now, click, click, click. Hi, Grace. We have search engines, nano information, the result of the speed, breakthrough, change, advance. Trying to impress a kid with a painting in the museum, not so easy. We've gone by calling everything. Everything is awesome. Music is awesome. This meal is awesome. Byproducts of being awe deprived. We become arrogant. We don't even have empathy. It is harder and harder to find meaning. There's a Wall Street Journal article. I didn't know that they did an article on awe, but it shows that the capacity to feel awe makes people more empathetic, generous, kind, and humble. The actual feeling of awe, according to the Wall Street Journal, and the experiences that inspire it make us healthier, they improve our emotional, uh, you know, our relationships, they give us more meaning. The author of the article, who is nameless in my notes, says awe is an an emotional response to something vast. It challenges and expands our way of seeing the world. It might be triggered by an encounter with nature, a religious experience, a concert, or political rally or sports event. We're not likely to find it on a treadmill at the gym. And then this author goes on to describe some experiences. Some have it at the awe of the birth of a child, others watching a meteor shower, others visiting a pine forest, looking at the ocean. Uh, Dr. Dachar Keltner from UC Berkeley found that the feeling of awe can help fight depression, can help reduce inflammation in the body. You know, I'm going off of my notes a moment and I'm thinking to myself, lahavdil, lahavdil, if children are so jaded today, if nothing makes them freeze in space, in place, and says, this is so much beyond me, I'm small and humbled and blown away in awe. Well, why shouldn't we have children who are on antidepressants? Why shouldn't we have 12-year-olds who are taking their own lives Yes, we're counting down to the Yamim Noreen, these days of awe. And on Rosh Hashanah, we're going to attend the real coronation versus the other one. We're going to coronate again God as king of the universe and remind ourselves of his awesome omnipotence. On Yom Kippur, we're going to be evaluated and judged, determined. Are we fulfilling our role in his renewed kingdom? Fresh, clean smelling, pristine, and embracing the purpose for which we were created. These days are just simply and literally awesome. But we're only going to be moved by awesomeness if we still have the capacity for awe, if we have the capacity for reverence. 
if everything is so utterly unimpressive, uninspiring, ordinary, yawn, yawn, another car, a BMW, another house, sell this one, buy that one, this vacation is dull. Yomim Noreen will just be ritualistic, it'll be ceremonial, devoid of meaning. Rabbi Yitzchak Hatner Zatzal explains that Amalek, that's our arch enemy of the Jewish people. Why? Because the Amalek philosophy is the very antithesis of ours. When recounting Amalek's attack on the Jewish people, this parsha, one of the pasukim, one of the uh, lines says, Amalek, you know, they happened upon you. Amalek believes in mikre. It happened. Chance, happenstance, rapid, randomness, coincidence. They see nothing as chashuv, meaningful, weighty, significant, worthy of awe. And as a result, the Amalek attitude is to denigrate, to knock down, destroy, be cynical, sarcastic. What does Amalek do? Amalek mocks, makes fun. Look at something or someone who is in awe and they seek to diminish it. We, the Jewish people, we're charged to live a life with that opposite attitude, the opposite approach. Yeah, we're supposed to live every day in awe, to see ourselves as a small part of something much greater it's our obligation to see and create meaning and purpose, to lift up, to build, to admire, respect that which is worthy and important in the world. Preparing for these days includes working to defeat that Amalek inside of us. It demands that we weaken and eliminate that 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 our tendency or inclination towards cynicism, skepticism. All old, what's new under the sun? Nothing. And strengthen and build up our capacity for to see that which is impressive, remarkable, praiseworthy. That Wall Street Journal article suggests that to preserve and expand our capacity for awe, we have to make an effort to have three awe experiences a week. I have to give that some thought. So for the remainder of Elul, according to Rabbi Golda, Goldberg, we should look at something, we should study something, we should contemplate something, we should admire something, experience something that makes you feel, wow, that's awesome. That's incredible. That's humbling. Albert Einstein is quoted as saying, there are only two ways to live your life. One is as if nothing is a miracle, and the other is as though everything is a miracle. As we prepare for these days of awe, let's choose to see everything as a miracle and be filled with awe as a result. Okay, we're winding down. In the last minutes, I want to tell you, I receive a mailing, a Sivan Rahav Mayer, media personality, teacher, really 
fantastic. Uh, write to me. I'll, I'll put you in touch with her. She sends a daily portion, and one is called, Who Did You Pray For Today? And she's talking about, she's visiting Gibraltar, and at the entrance to the local Jewish high school in Gibraltar, there's a sign that reads, Let's Pray For Each Other. And next to it is a list of all the girls in the school. So she was told that every girl in the school was given a name of a classmate along with the mother's name. And they had to go to that girl and ask, what is lacking in your life? And I will pray for you. I will pray on your behalf. The school principal explained that this project um, is for the month of Elul in preparation for the high holy days. This educational campaign it inculcates values such as caring sincerely about another person, that a world doesn't revolve around only us and the concerns of others deserve our prayers. I don't know about you. I'm not a high school student anymore. But you know what? We still can connect. We can conduct such a campaign as adults to pray for a close friend and perhaps to ask them without embarrassment, to pray for us. You know, this could be a wonderful habit to develop, asking ourselves daily, who will I pray for today? I'm very excited about this Shabbos because I'm aware of it, you're aware of it, and we have an opportunity to deepen our awe and get it right, regardless of where we're coming from. Andrea Simintov, Shabbat Shalom, Umivorach, from Jerusalem. <laughs>